acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wooden! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. O-Z-Y. Ozzy. Ozzy Media Productions. He sent me back a box of chocolates with a note that said, eat it. The day that you are willing to come out here with a cottontail attached to your rear end. What I'd like to do... That is what I would like to accomplish. I would like to be a good actress. Well, here's to Nevada, the leave it state. I think that you could safely call Clark Gable a gold digger. I'm Sean Braswell, and this is The Thread, where we unravel the stories behind some of the most important lives and events in history. This season, we've connected the stories of five American icons— We saw how Hollywood legend Clark Gable's star power helped launch Las Vegas when his second wife, Rhea Langham, divorced him there. It was in Las Vegas that a 19-year-old named Norma Jean Doherty later obtained her own quickie divorce, enabling her to start her path toward becoming the legendary Marilyn Monroe. Then, in turn, an unknown magazine publisher named Hugh Hefner cashed in on Monroe's fame, using her nude image to launch his Playboy empire. And finally... It was in one of Hefner's famous Playboy clubs that a young reporter named Gloria Steinem first concluded that all women are bunnies, an insight that helped launch her career as a champion for women's rights. In this final episode of the season, we complete our thread by tracing it back to its origins in early Hollywood. The same studio system that transformed the flawed Clark Gable into a king also created a culture of abuse for women that lingers to this day. And so we will also bring our story full circle, back to Steinem, back to Me Too, and the modern women's movement. In many ways, this remarkable thread is ongoing and still impacts all of us today. Clark Gable depended upon a series of wealthy, older, and more experienced women to help get his career off the ground. But Gable still struggled to make it as an actor. When Clark Gable first came to Hollywood, he was in a bunch of bit parts and was not successful at all. 
That's Anne Helen Peterson, a senior culture writer for BuzzFeed. The men who ran the major Hollywood studios at the time frankly did not give a damn about Clark Gable. Warner Brothers executive Daryl Zanuck reportedly said, quote, His ears are too big and he looks like an ape. MGM head Louis B. Mayer said Gable was, quote, too elephant-eared and unattractive to be a leading man. So Gable played mostly minor villains and thugs, from an ex-con turned cowboy in the painted desert to a murderous chauffeur and night nurse. Get busy. I tell you, I can't without the proper authority. I give you the authority. Who are you? I'm Nick. The chauffeur. The women who encountered Clark Gable in Hollywood saw him as much more than a chauffeur, rogue, or scoundrel. This included perhaps the most influential woman in Hollywood. Ida Coverman was Louis B. Mayer's secretary. E.J. Fleming, the author of several books on early Hollywood. And Ida Coverman was responsible for some of the biggest MGM stars. Do you remember Ida Coverman from episode 5? She was the one who handled Rhea Langham, Gable's live-in girlfriend, when she came to MGM to demand Gable's hand in marriage. The formidable Coverman, nicknamed Mount Ida, was Louis B. Mayer's top administrator, gatekeeper, and protectress. She was also considered by many to be the brains behind MGM. She made sure that Mayer saw the best scripts, and she handpicked many of the studio's top stars. One executive put it this way, Coverman, quote, damn near ran the studio. MGM's male leaders could only see Clark Gable's ears. Ida Coverman saw a star. One of Gable's first Hollywood films was called The Easiest Way. He played a truck driver for a laundry business and appeared in only a few scenes. His name is listed last in the credits. The Easiest Way was screened before a local test audience. The MGM executive who oversaw the film and the test screening was Irving Thalberg. He was mostly interested in how the audience would react to the film's leading lady. Instead, Thalberg witnessed something entirely unexpected. The audience sat upright whenever Gable appeared. Afterwards, women kept asking ushers, who was that handsome laundryman? Thalberg signed Gable to a contract the following day. He made sure Gable starred in nine of MGM's best films that year, and alongside the studio's biggest female stars. Fortune smiled on Clark Gable but his stardom was no accident. Here's the thing, and it's something that even Irving Thalberg didn't realize at the time. Clark Gable's breakthrough moment, like so many breaks in his life, was orchestrated by a woman. In this case, Ida Coverman. She packed the test audience with female MGM employees, women who were sure to be enthralled by the handsome laundryman. While Ida Coverman identified stars like Clark Gable, Many of Hollywood's top male executives auditioned aspiring female performers on what came to be known as the casting couch. For many women, from the lowliest contract actress to the biggest star, the so-called golden age of Hollywood could be a gilded nightmare. Shirley Temple was a Hollywood megastar at age six. She became a national treasure in a country reeling from the Depression. On the good ship, lollipop, it's a sweet trip to a candy shop. Temple was a child of the studio system, but even the wholesome superstar could not avoid the wolves of Hollywood. The 12-year-old Temple signed her first contract with MGM in 1940 and went there with her mother to meet her new bosses. According to Temple, she and her mother were separated when they arrived at the studio's executive suites. 
Studio head Louis B. Mayer escorted her mother to his office and left Temple alone with Arthur Freed, a producer on The Wizard of Oz. Freed allegedly told Temple, I have something made for just you. Temple described what happened next in her 1988 autobiography. She wrote, With his face gaped in a smile, he stood up abruptly and executed a bizarre flourish of clothing. Temple wrote that the 44-year-old Freed then pulled his penis out of his pants. The young Temple reacted with nervous laughter. Get out, Freed shouted with his pants around his ankles. Go on, get out. Shirley rejoined her mother and learned that she too had had to rush out of the office when Louis B. Mayer lunged at her on his couch. As Temple summed it up, MGM had, quote, more than its quota of lecherous older men. Hollywood's problem with lecherous old men started at the very top. The studio system consolidated at the end of the 1920s when talkies started to replace silent films. The men at the top of the few major studios that remained wielded unprecedented power, and they quickly learned to abuse it and the steady influx of aspiring actresses that came through their doors. And Helen Peterson again. Oftentimes we describe these studio heads as like brilliant men who guided these studios, and they did that, but then they also, you know, wrecked a lot of people's lives. The studio heads set the tone for a culture of abuse that soon became endemic to their organizations. The casting couch culture has been a problem as long as movies have been made. E.J. Fleming. If girls wanted into the movies, they had to sleep with men. It was that simple. They didn't have an option. And they had to sleep with men at every level. Cameramen, directors, writers. Like today, everyone knew about it and people whispered about it. And if you didn't want to do it and you, like, usually the the sentiment passed along was, like, shut up and do it if that's, if you want a career in Hollywood, this is what you have to do. And even after you had paid the price to establish yourself in Hollywood as an actress, the studio bosses still had leverage over you. If the female stars rebelled in any sort of way, whether that was refusing sexual favors or anything else, they would just stick them in movies. Some of the biggest offenders are names we've already mentioned this season. First, Louis B. Mayer, the head of MGM, who was so instrumental to Clark Gable's rise and so solicitous towards Shirley Temple's mother. Mayer had a hard-won reputation as a guardian of the public morality in Hollywood, someone who made wholesome, quality motion pictures. He was no different than any of the other studio heads. The truth was he was a notorious abuser from his earliest days. The very first meeting he had with an actress, he would tell her, be nice to me and I'll be nice to you. Each studio had a steady supply of what were known as six-month option girls, young starlets that the executives passed around like candy. In episode three, we told the story of Harry Cohn, the chief of Columbia Pictures, who fired Marilyn Monroe when she would not join him on his yacht. He reportedly kept a private room next to his office for his casting sessions. And Daryl Zanuck, the head of production at Warner Brothers, who thought Clark Gable resembled an ape? Zanuck built the casting couch into his daily routine. The entire place shut down at 4 o'clock. And from 4 to 4.30, no decisions were made because every single day... At four o'clock, one of the contract actresses was brought to a back entrance to his office to have sex with Daryl Zanuck. The only actress who ever said no was Betty Grable. The first time she was brought to his office, he walked up to her and she looked at it. She looked at him and said, "That's beautiful, Daryl. You can put that away now." 
Daryl Zanuck, Louis B. Mayer, and other studio bosses were the original wolves of Hollywood, says Fleming. Women had little power against them. Rarely a woman fought back. And if she did, the studio fixers went into overdrive. Case in point, the story of Patricia Douglas, a lowly 20-year-old dancer who took on Hollywood's biggest studio at the height of its power. MGM and Louis B. Mayer had a lot to celebrate in 1937. The Depression sent most of the studio's rivals into bankruptcy or receivership. But MGM was rolling in profits, thanks to its stable of film stars and innovative sales team. And so Mayer decided to throw a studio party to end all studio parties at MGM's annual sales convention. E.J. Fleming. They brought 300 distributors, theater owners, and film salesmen to the studio from all over the country for a five-day boondoggle at the studio. And Helen Peterson again. MGM brought in a bunch of basically bigwigs within the company who were showing the films, you know, the, the exhibitors of the films, and threw a huge party with a ton of booze, and then employed a bunch of women, you know, aspiring starlets, as arm candy, essentially. Patricia Douglas was one of the young women who answered what appeared to be a routine casting call. Patricia Douglas was a beautiful 20-year-old girl who lived in Hollywood with her mother. Patricia went to a convent school. She was very religious. And like many young women, she had no idea what she was getting into for the promise of $7.50 and a hot meal. Louis B. Mayer greeted MGM's honored male guests when they arrived at the train station amid much fanfare. And he had dozens of beautiful women with him for the occasion. Mayer welcomed them by saying... All these lovely girls are here to show you how we feel about you. They'll give you anything you want. That basically set the tone for the week. The highlight of the week was a Western-themed party at a remote ranch outside of town. 500 cases of scotch and champagne were brought in for 300 men. The invitations read it will be a stag affair out in the wild and woolly west where men are men. MGM outfitted Douglas and the other women in bolero jackets, short suede skirts, black boots, and cowboy hats. They were placed on a bus and driven out of town. According to Douglas, many believed that they were going to a film shoot. When they got to the ranch, they realized there were no lights and no cameras, just hundreds of drunk salesmen. The women had to fend for themselves. They were basically trapped there. There were obviously no telephones. There were no taxis. By midnight, the party was out of control. Douglas claimed that she was pursued by a pudgy 36-year-old bachelor from Chicago named David Ross. She rebuffed his advances, and Ross grew violent. Sometime after midnight, he dragged her into the parking lot, threw her in a car, beat her badly, and raped her. According to Douglas, she started to black out from the alcohol that Ross and a couple of friends forced down her throat earlier in the evening. Ross slapped Douglas and yelled, Cooperate! I want you awake! The parking lot attendant happened to find her about an hour later, and he grabbed one of the Culver City police that were working the event, and they threw her in a car and took her to the hospital across the street. The hospital was basically MGM's private hospital, and the, the head doctor was known as the studio family doctor. The doctor claimed to find no signs of intercourse. Douglas was driven home in a studio car. No crime report was ever filed. Douglas tried to tell MGM what had happened to her, but the studio ignored her. 
So did the Los Angeles district attorney, who was a close friend of Louis B. Mayer. So Douglas got a lawyer and filed a lawsuit against David Ross, Eddie Mannix, and others. She wasn't after money. Rather, as Douglas, who died in 2003, later said, quote, I just wanted to be vindicated, to hear someone say, you can't do that to a woman. What Patricia Douglas did was completely unprecedented, in part because it was so public. Uh, you know, some women had tried to, you know, maybe protest internally, but they never would go public with something like a rape charge. Mayor in the studio had a squeaky clean image to uphold. And just the news of the wild stag party, let alone a potential rape, would be enough to send the company's stockholders into a frenzy. You know, it was just bad news all around. And so they squashed the case. Enter Eddie Mannix and Howard Strickling, the two head fixers at MGM that we learned about last episode. Mannix and Strickling went to work right away. There were newspaper stories about a woman who was assaulted at a party, but MGM was never named as the studio. The newspaper whitewashing was just the start. MGM actually hired Pinkerton detectives to dig up dirt on Patricia, but they had a problem because they found out that she was a virgin who never drank. When blaming the victim didn't pan out, says Fleming, the fixers fixed other things, including the memories of key witnesses. Only two of the 130 women even admitted that the party was wild. The parking attendant also lost his memory. The attendant's family later said that he was given a job for life at MGM anywhere he wanted. Patricia Douglas's lawsuit was eventually dismissed. As MGM fixer Eddie Mannix reportedly put it, quote, we had her killed. I think one of the tragedies is that the very story of what she did and the way that she stood up to MGM is largely lost. And even today, it's not part of the story that we really talk about, um, in part because MGM was so effective in burying it and making sure that it didn't become part of the narrative of the studio or classic Hollywood or how women resisted the way that they were treated at the time. Douglas's ordeal was rediscovered near the end of her life by a reporter. She agreed to share her story with the world once again. Why? This is how Douglas put it. When I die, the truth dies with me. And that means those bastards win. This brings us to the end of our trip back through time. We've now pulled on a thread that connects the lives of Gloria Steinem, Hugh Hefner, Marilyn Monroe, Las Vegas, and Clark Gable. One that runs from the pages of Ms. Magazine to the casting couches of early Hollywood. But this thread does not exist in isolation. Up next, we bring our story full circle. The lives and events we've heard about this season are part of a much larger arc of history, stepping stones to a far greater story. One that we are all a part of. And thanks in no small measure to Gloria Steinem. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hollywood was a man's world from the start, an imbalance of power that allowed a culture of sexual harassment and discrimination to thrive. Of course, that is not at all how Hollywood was perceived from the outside. And Helen Peterson again. There was this real facade that was very carefully cultivated and maintained, that Hollywood was an incredibly moral place where only moral things happened. And occasionally something would pop through that really like spoke truth to that lie. Like what happened to Patricia Douglas. But it was quickly papered over. And you know this really worked until the 1950s and the disintegration of the studio and star system. But the abuse continued, even after the studio system broke down. Thousands of women endured the harassment, and few spoke up. For decades, the history of women in Hollywood has been a history of silence. And Peterson says this silence made it easier for Hollywood to lie to itself. What has interested me most about the revelations around Weinstein and around Me Too and why I think it has shaken Hollywood so profoundly is that it really believed itself to be a progressive place where something like this, something that belongs in the echelons of like classic Hollywood, could never happen. And some things have not changed so much over the years, says E.J. Fleming. The casting couch problem never really went away. The men in authority in Hollywood, the writers, the directors, the producers, they never stopped leveraging that position. And they are still surrounded by enablers and fixers. The similarities between what Harvey Weinstein did and what the fixers at MGM did they're incredibly striking. And that's instructive because it shows like, 
you know, <laughs> we thought we were way beyond all that sort of cover-up, all that sort of vile manipulation of women, all of the complicity of all of these other people involved that made this sort of exploitation possible. But we're not. Sexual harassment has, of course, been pervasive beyond the world of Hollywood. But for a long time, there wasn't even a word for it. Gloria Steinem. The term sexual harassment was invented by women, uh, young women at Cornell University who were trying to describe what happened to them on summer jobs. Steinem was no stranger to the experience herself. She endured all manner of sexist barbs and harassment long before she went undercover as a Playboy bunny or was ridiculed in Screw magazine. This is Gloria Steinem biographer Patricia Marcello again from episode one. That's just how it was. Sexual harassment wasn't a thing. That was just a way of life. And she said that herself. Um, In fact, she said exactly, sexual harassment is about power. When one is uh, brave to assert themselves and tell a story, then other women will be too. The young dancer Patricia Douglas was brave enough to tell her story. So was Marilyn Monroe. And starting with her expose, A Bunny's Tale, Gloria Steinem learned not just to tell her own story, but also the stories of other women, and to make sure that as many people as possible heard those stories. Because we grow up in this culture, which is, to whatever degree, racist and sexist and infected with class, we kind of think it's normal because we don't know anything else. So until we start to talk to each other and and uh, affirm that we are not alone in our f- in our experiences or objections. It is an easy and understandable thing to remain silent, to live in fear of powerful men. But as the Me Too movement has demonstrated, it is also a powerful thing to know you are not alone. Anne Helen Peterson. I think that there is change coming, and I feel much more optimistic than I did not even that long ago. Patricia Marcello agrees. So I think that, um, you know, things like that Screw Magazine article are long past. We won't ever, ever, ever see anything like that again, especially in light of what's going on today. Because of what has happened in recent months and recent decades, we can be hopeful that things are changing in Hollywood and beyond. Because of all the women who were brave enough to fight back when there was next to nothing to be gained from doing so, because of Patricia Douglas, because of Marilyn Monroe, and perhaps most importantly, because of Gloria Steinem. We're at a remarkable moment in history with the rise of the Me Too movement. Like many things, this is progressive, and now it has reached a tipping point so that women are being believed for the first time in my life. Tipping points in history rarely happen by accident, though. They need trailblazers, those who are willing to be the first ones over the ramparts, the first ones on the protest lines. People like Gloria Steinem. You know, she was just a troublemaker. Um, and they really came down on her so bad that she almost left the scene. But she, being the strong woman that she is, didn't. She hung in there and she just kept pushing until, you know, things changed. Thank God for that. Gloria Steinem was not just a troublemaker and a trailblazer. She was an organizer, a catalyst. Often that is what tipping points require above all else someone who can bring people together. And in an era before social media and the information age, that meant someone willing to hit the road, someone willing to ride the bus and live out of a suitcase, someone willing to listen to thousands of individual women's stories, someone who can tell you that you are not alone, 
that you're not crazy. But it wasn't until the women's movement came along and people began to gather in living rooms and school gyms and cafeterias and factories and talk to each other, as they are talking to each other now about sexual harassment, and realizing that we were not crazy, the system was crazy, that we had a right to be treated equally and paid equally and uh, to be physically safe. It can be hard to quantify the impact of an organizer and influencer like Steinem in the abstract, but it's there in the story of every individual whose life she has touched. Patricia Marcello again. Well, I know what it's meant for me. Um, I came up through the ranks, um, you know, starting out as a a 20-something girl at a a college. Um, And I was offered receptionist jobs and secretary jobs. And, you know, secretary, teacher, mother, um, you know, those nurse, those jobs were what women did. And I didn't want to do that. It was difficult then when she started this. It was impossible. Um, Now, things are much different. Things are different. And in some ways, that makes our thread all the more incredible. The story of Gloria Steinem stretches back into some unusual places, from the Playboy clubs to the casting couches of early Hollywood, places you'd never expect to give birth to a feminist icon. Think about it. Studio executives greenlight the career of Clark Gable, a chronic womanizer, and one of the historical fruits of that decision is the woman who will lead a revolution that could bring about the end of that corrupt, dehumanizing system. Call it irony. Call it fate. Or perhaps even better, call it what Gloria Steinem does. This is the upside of the downside. This is an outpouring of energy and true democracy like I have never seen in my very long life. (laughs) That's Gloria Steinem at last year's Women's March in Washington, D.C. That march and the Me Too movement are part of a longer fight for women's liberation. It's the same movement. I mean, it's a, it's a continuation of the consciousness that says, you know, now I can speak my experience and, and be believed. It happened to me, too. Me, too. It happened to me, too. And it happened to me, too. This is my story. And to those who would dare try and silence us, we offer you two words. Time's up. So where then does our thread go from here, from Steinem? Well, that's up to all of us. I've never seen in my life, never, ever have I seen this level of activism. So will it be enough? We don't know. But, um, but we just have to keep doing whatever we can every day. Thread is produced by Libby Coleman and me, Sean Braswell. Chris Hoff engineered our show. Special thanks to Cindy Carpian, Tracy Moran, and James Watkins. 
This episode features demonstrators from the 2017 Women's March performing a song by Milk called I Can't Keep Quiet. To learn more about The Thread, visit aussie.com slash the thread, all one word. And make sure to subscribe to The Thread on Apple Podcasts. Check us out at aussie.com or on Twitter and Facebook. If you love surprising, engaging stories from history, look no further than the flashback section of aussie.com. That's ozy.com. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for more interconnected stories from history with Season 3 of The Thread, coming soon. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wooden! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.